Ponder anew what the Almighty can do, who with his love doth befriend you. Let's ponder anew as we draw near our God in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come to glorify you, worship you. This is our chief end, Lord, what we are made for. We are made for worship, to rejoice in you, rejoice in your strength, rejoice in the God you are. So we come with joy in our hearts, sheer joy for all that you give us. You withhold no good thing from us. You bless us richly through your creation, through our families, through our friends, but supremely through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In him, you place a crown of righteousness upon our heads, a crown of pure gold, a crown that declares that we are part of your royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people called out of darkness into your glorious light, the recipients of mercy, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, mercy we did not deserve, mercy full and free, mercy as deep as the ocean, Mercy that brings life eternal, eternal blessings, eternal joy, the joy of your presence, the gladness of heart only your presence can bring, the adoration of our hearts that only your splendor and majesty can bring forth. Father, we thank you for Jesus and that the deepest desires of our hearts are met in him, our prophet, priest, and king, our shepherd, brother, and friend, friend of sinners, our gracious Savior, who blesses bountifully. Be exalted, O Lord. Be lifted up. We give you the praise of our hearts, for the grace you have shown us in Jesus Christ, grace that has made sweet communion with you possible. How could we turn from such a God? How could we delight in other things? How could we settle for that which is false in the face of the truth revealed in Jesus Christ? And yet, Father, we do. We turn away. We wander from you. We drift. We stray. We seek pleasure in other things, worldly things, lesser things. We fail you. We deny you. We sin in thought, word, and deed. Forgive us, we pray. And in the assurance of that forgiveness, the assurance of your grace towards us that we do not deserve, in the assurance of the cross, create in us pure hearts, create in us steadfast spirits, 
create in us the obedience of faith, that the desire of our hearts would be to live for you, for you and you alone. This we ask in Jesus' name. He who, when we pray together, taught us to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our first Bible reading this morning is from Judges chapter 17. I say first because we're looking at Judges 17 through to Judges 19 verse 1. Uh, a long section. So we're going to split it. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols, and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit, or as other translations have it, did what was right in their own eyes. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living with the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I am looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest. And I will give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him. And the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Amen. And we pick up the narrative again at the beginning of Judges 18, reading through to verse 1 of Judges 19. 
In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshtahol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go, explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me, and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered to them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtel, their brothers asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We have seen that the land is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatsoever. Then 600 men from the clans of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtahol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. That is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Mahani-Dan to this day. For there they went on to the hill country. From there they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household goods, gods, and a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite and Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved images, the ephod, the other house of gods, and the cast idol, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. When these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household goods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They answered him, be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be your father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priest? rather than just one man's household. Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image, and went along with the people, putting the little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, 
they turned away and left. When he had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you've called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us, or some hot-tempered men will attack you, and your family will use your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned round and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. They attacked them with a sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their forefather Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. In those days, Israel had no king. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in your word, the psalmist writes, Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Lord God, by your Holy Spirit at work in us. Direct us in accordance with your word. Turn our hearts towards it. Cause us to delight in it, that we might indeed turn away from all else and turn to you in whose word is life, life eternal. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. They started badly and fell away. That was a phrase my old boss used to describe the performance of our factory in the company I used to work for before I went to study for the ministry. They started badly and fell away. You may wince at it grammatically, 
But hopefully, you get the point. My boss was seeking to convey that as far as the factory was concerned, things had not gone at all well. The book of Judges records part of the history of God's people. A time in which things had not gone at all well. The 21 chapters which comprise the book of Judges can be split into three parts. And the first from chapters 1 to chapter 3 verse 6, we see the failure of the second generation of Israelites following on from Joshua to maintain covenant loyalty with their God. You have disobeyed me, God tells them in chapter 2 and verse 2. And the concluding verse of the section tells us how the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. They diluted their faith. They denied their God. They to quote Judges 2 and verse 7, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and Asherahs. That phrase, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, occurs six times in the next and largest section of the book, chapters 3 to 16. These record the downward spiral of the nation. Rebellion on the part of Israel is followed by retribution sent by God. And when Israel repents, God rescues her by sending judges, deliverers. And the same sequence follows. But as said, it was a downward spiral. Repentance featured less and less and was pretty suspect when it did appear. While rebellion grew even more serious. And the only regular feature was that sooner or later, God would raise up a judge to set matters temporarily right. Over many, many years, we see the salvation brought by a long-suffering God. But the last section of the book, chapter 17 to 21, is different. The previous framework no longer applies. Indeed, there is no framework. There is no identified judge, no deliverer, and most significantly and seriously, no calling on God. The people of God cannot expect anything really in the end to go well if they stop calling on the Lord their God. Here is Israel wallowing in their own religious and moral mess. Here the problem is not the enemy without, but the cancer within. Here Israel has hit rock bottom. Here we have the people of God, the one and only living God, making their own gods. Here we have a nation who have forgotten their God. Is there a better description for our day? A day in which people do right in their own eyes. Those who in modern terminology demonstrate expressive individualism. 
At present, Colin Bickerton is very helpfully taking us through this concept as a Kirk Session and other leaders in order that as a church we might be better equipped to respond biblically to the contemporary culture we find ourselves in. Expressive individualism is the belief that people should be encouraged to look inside rather than outside of themselves and choose their own beliefs, their own preferences, write their own script, do right in their own eyes. In short, to look to self rather than to God. And inevitably, in such circumstances, the Bible, God's Word, is a closed book for many. I remember seeing a poster outside a church. It pictured a dental surgery and had the caption, Fight, truth decay. Read your Bible. In an age where everyone does right in their own eyes, are we fighting truth decay? Are we reading our Bible? We wouldn't usually think of going through a day without eating something. What about the bread of life? What about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Judges 17 and 18, which I invite you to turn to now, is all about false religion. People not worshipping God as they ought. Religion which is out of kilter with God's word. Religion which is condemned. We begin with the condemnation of false religion. This is not done overtly. We do not read they did evil in the eyes of the Lord as we have previously in the book. But from start to finish, condemnation permeates these chapters. Consider the portrayal of the characters in the story. What a cast. A real bunch of ancient Near East Enders. Firstly, Micah. He breaks the Eighth Commandment and steals from his mother. Her curse seems to be the trigger for his repentance. But if we know our Bible, we know that Micah is already under a curse, a far more serious one. Deuteronomy 27 and verse 15 tells us, Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol a thing detestable to the Lord, and sets it up in secret. This is something, according to verse 5, Micah is apparently already doing. Setting up a shrine and some idols, and making an ephod, a tunic to be worn by a priest. In this case, one of Micah's sons. Yet another controversion of the law as his son was not a part of a priestly family. Think of a young guy walking down Main Street and me stepping out and saying, put this on, son, you're our next minister, to get something of the flavour of what's going on here. And if all of that were not enough, 
Micah's very name implies condemnation. In its full form, Micah means who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord God? Expected answer? No one. But Micah manages to reduce his God's incomparability to a few pieces of cast metal. His mother is cast in a similar mold, pun intended. She seeks to reverse and then she seeks to to reverse a solemn curse with a fresh blessing and then consecrates a fraction of her returned wealth to God for illegitimate worship of him. Then there's a Levite who Micah hires, accepts like one of his own sons and regards as a guarantee of God's blessing. This guy gives his blessing to the five Danite spies, which culminates in an attack, as verse 27 tells us, on a peaceful and unsuspecting people. When the Levite receives the invitation from the Danites to move on, he gladly accepts it. He moves on, as far as he's concerned, to bigger and better things. The bright lights beckon. Why minister in a backwater when he can be up front and center in in front of a bona fide tribe of Israel? Enter the Danites, represented as bullies, whose intimidation of Micah is of a piece with an eventual attack on Leish. An attack which is made to seem cruel, even by the standards of the time. Throughout the narrative, doubt is cast on the moral character of all concerned. And in a tone which says to the reader, can you believe these people? Can you believe they would act like this? Can you believe that they would look to other things, lesser things, rather than to the living God? Would you believe that they would worship the created rather than the creator? Would you believe that they would worship the kind of God portrayed in verse 18 and 24? You took the gods I made, is Micah's complaint to the Danites. Any faithful worshipper of the Lord God should find Micah's cry both tragic and ludicrous. A God who cannot avoid being taken is surely by definition a non-entity. But in the face of the loss of these idols, Micah's cry is, what else do I have? It is as if he has lost everything now that his idols have been taken from him. He's a member of God's covenant people. A people that the one and only living God in grace has drawn near and established his covenant with. Promising to be their God, promising to be with them, promising never to leave them nor forsake them. The God who in recent times has time and again raised up judges to deliver them. This in the face of the repeated 
rebellion. Would you believe that Micah would look to any other rather than his God? But that's precisely what we see in verse 17 and 13, with Micah declaring, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since the Levite has become my priest. Micah is confident that he has the Lord God's favor, because now he has an actual Levite as his priest, a real minister, if you like, rather than merely his own son. John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. A factory line. Producing things that we look to instead of God. We may consider that we are far removed from the situation in Judges 17 and 18. But anything we enthroned in our lives that threatens to displace God as an idol. Calvin's words are worth listening to. We have to guard against worshipping the created rather than the creator. We have to guard against being like the Danites. They continued to use idols, the idols Micah had made, all the time the house of Shiloh, sorry, all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. They continued worshipping other things. True worship is to be regulated by God's word, by royal revelation, if you like. Three times in our passage, we are told why this situation has come to pass. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit or did what was right in their own eyes. And then again, 18.1, in those days, Israel had no king. Repeated at 19.1. This is the explanation for the flourishing of all the shenanigans we see going on in Judges 17 and 18. The writer more or less says that had there been a king back then, this would not have been happening. The writer has, of course, a particular king, kind of king in mind. A king who upholds the Lord God's covenant standards. A king who loves God, who loves God's word, who loves God's people. Doing what was right in that king's eyes would have put a stop to such adulterated worship. The condemnation of false religion. The wrong-headed worship of God. Because it diminishes the Lord God demeans the Lord God, denies the Lord God, denies him his rightful place in worship. And that has corrosive effect. 
the condemnation of false religion and the corrosive nature of false religion. The Danites reenact Micah's folly. What begins in the perverted thinking of Micah and his mother spreads like gangrene and affects the entire tribal group. Men, women, and the little children mentioned in verse 21. Children who will grow up to have a distorted view of the one and only living God grow up into a pick-and-mix religion in which the living God does not have the final world word. In false religion, God's word has less and less effect. All the right religious trappings might be there. Verse 30 tells us that the Levite Jonathan is son of Gershom, the son of Moses. Outwardly, he has an impressive spiritual pedigree. But the conclusion of the verse tells us where all this is going. Jonathan and his descendants' ministry continued until the time of the captivity of the land. Fast forward in the history of God's people to the division of the kingdom. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And as soon as that happened, Jeroboam, king of Israel, instituted the worship of two golden calves, one at Bethel and one at Dan. The same thing is happening. The corrosive effect of false religion, it spreads. Like a lethal infection injected into the life of the nation. And it continues of corrosive effect, eating away at the spiritual vitality of the people of God, producing, as we read through the Bible, a string of kings, which, as the book of Kings tells us, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, a period in which even the ministries of Elijah and Elisha could not stop the rot, this in the end leading to the extinction of Israel as it was taken into exile by Assyria. Second Kings 17 and verse 18 declares, The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God, but followed the practices that Israel introduced. And so corrosion continued as God's people maintained their tendency to combine or blend various elements of pagan religion with the worship of the Lord God, this culminating in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the exile of Judah to Babylon. The corrosive nature of false religion, 
what it brings to the life of a nation, then and now. Go home and turn on the TV or open your newspaper or surf the net on your smartphone and you will, I suggest, come across more examples of the corrosive effect of false religion than you can shake a stick at. Things that are eating away at our well-being. All with the capacity to put self before God and so separate people from him. Separate them from life. Separate them from Jesus. And it is he I want to focus on now. Jesus, the king, the counter to false religion. The cross of nature of false religion. The counter to false religion. As I already said, but it bears repeating because God's word repeats it. The problem was that there was no king in the land. People did what was right in their own eyes. And God's word is saying, take this in. If Israel had had a king back then, the right kind of king, a king loyal to the covenant, a king after God's own heart, things would not have been in the mess they were. Doing what was right in this king's eyes would have been to be doing what was right in God's eyes. What God had told them to do. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean for us as the people of God, the church, in days that in so many ways mirror the book of Judges? It means that we do right in the king's eyes. That is the counter to false religion. As I already said, to park kids. And hopefully, as the hymns you've been singing have reminded you, we have a king. Jesus is our king. King of kings and Lord of lords, as Revelation 19 and verse 16 declares him to be. We have to do right in his eyes. We have to do what he tells us to. And as I already said to park kids, what he tells us to do is follow me. That was Christ's call to Peter as he stood net in hand by Lake Galilee. Three years later, 
standing by the same lake in the aftermath of Peter's denial of the Lord, the call remained the same. Follow me. And the call remains the same for every one of us. Follow me. That call comes to every one of us who would own the name of Jesus. We're not called to go our own way, to do what we see fit, to do what is right in our own eyes. We are called to be committed, faithful, passionate followers of Jesus. In short, to give him the worship of our lives. We are to worship in spirit and truth with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength and all our mind. We are not to be like Micah or his mother or Jonathan the Levite or the Danites. How do we maintain the purity of worship? How do we counter false religion? By doing what is right in the king's eyes. By doing what is right as far as Jesus is concerned. Taking the broad way is to do whatever I want to do. What is right in my eyes. Taking the narrow gate as Jesus calls us to is in obedience to do whatever is right in his eyes. And that is to change us. To make us more like Jesus. We, in the words of 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, are to be transformed into his likeness. Is that happening? Can people see the difference God and Jesus Christ has made in us? Is our worship of the living God changing us? In the false religion portrayed in Judges 17 and 18, there is no sense of those involved drawing nearer to God, being changed by God. Quite the reverse, the corrosive nature of false religion has the opposite effect, steadily producing a godliness in the nation of Israel which issues in God, removing them from his presence. The counter of this is to do what is right in the king's eyes by being faithful followers, laying down our lives as a sacrifice of praise. Worship is not to stop at the door of the church. Where will we go in the rest of the week? Will we go where Jesus wants us to. Well, his words, follow me, feature 
in our thinking, feature in the way we order our lives, the people we talk to, the places we go, the decisions we take. What impact will our worship have on our lives? Will we go? Will we follow? Will we do what is right in the king's eyes? Will we be good, faithful witnesses? Will our lives point to Jesus? Matthias Grunwald's painting, The Crucifixion, has John the Baptist to the left of the cross pointing to our crucified Lord. John's finger is enlarged. Words in the background in Latin read, he must increase, I must decrease. John points away from himself to the person of Christ the King, the only one worthy of worship. He must increase, I must decrease. I ask myself, is that a reality in my life? Our world, like that portrayed in Judges 17 and 18, is one in which so often God is diminished and self-exalted. Will we live to counter this? To counter false religion? Will we, by our lives, point away from self to Jesus, God incarnate? Will we each be a living, active, vital part of his body, the church, here in Uddingston? Those who, by our lives, laid down in glad service to our Saviour, play our part in stopping the rot. What hope is there of that, you say, in a time like ours, when a small, weak church is faced with a culture in which there is a toxic mix of indifference, suspicion, and hostility, a culture where self is exalted, above all, a culture in which, a culture which defiantly declares, in the words of the Virgin Airways ad, I am who I am. Don't tell me what to do. What hope in times like this? But what hope would you have given for the people of God in the time of Judges, in the time of the exile? What hope would you give him? But always there was a promise. The promise of a new covenant, a new king, a shepherd king, our King Jesus. So let's continue to be the worshipping community he calls us to be, doing what is right in his eyes, responding to the call to follow him and point others to him that they would do likewise and become part of his body, those who do right in his eyes, those who declare there is a king in the land and his name is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord God, as we go into this week, may we hear those words, follow me. May we seek to go where Jesus would have us go and do what he would have us do. In his name we ask it. Amen.